You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. And here we are, another special episode, like all my babies. (laughs) And we're talking about Airheads from 1994 and Can't Hardly Wait from 1998. They're both 90s nostalgia. Although they examine it from different ends, one is kind of early 90s, the other's late 90s, the music is different. So let's start just talking about licensed music in movies. John, what do you think the deal is these days? When do recognizable songs work in telling the story, and when do you think it's terrible to include them? I remember the Matrix soundtrack was like one of the first movie soundtracks I bought, because that was all just heavy metal and techno that was pretending to be heavy metal certain movies it doesn't work marie antoinette that had all those modern movies in it it was supposed to be a period piece about this french queen the thing i really have trouble with right now are film trailers and how the formula is so blatant and all they're doing the last couple years is taking awesome classic songs and then slowing them down to be more melodramatic and then they just put that over a trailer the movie San Andreas, they slowed down California Dreamin', so it sounded like a tragedy song. <laughs> it's gotten to a point where when I watch a trailer now, I don't even care about the movie. How many seconds into this before I recognize the lyrics and I know what song they're ripping off? <laughs> <laughs> I work a lot of weddings as a chef, and the piano guy will come out, and he'll play something slow on piano, and after a few minutes, you're like, wait, that's Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> and does it make you go huh yeah that's dr feel good or do you kind of want to run up to him and go stop it yeah sometimes i do i saw this orchestra once and they did all the star trek themes to warm up the string section Ooh, i like them already yeah they were great actually the whole licensed music thing is it a sign of the apocalypse that musicians now just do remixes Yes and no. Someone once said that there's only like, what, 32 original ideas, and we've used them all. But on the other hand, yeah, I think remixes are a sign of the apocalypse. Thinking about, like, Famine, Famine is one of the horsemen, and that's not something coming, that's a complete lack of something, and so maybe this is a uh, originality Famine. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. You need to go to some liberal arts college and teach kids about this. (laughs) (laughs) As we get into Airheads, an era before they started to really put in a lot of remade music, a lot of originals in this, the plot of it is very simple. Yeah. Airheads, Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, Adam Sandler, they're a trio calling themselves the Lone Rangers. (laughs) Not very lone. (laughs) And they're just a band trying to make it in L.A. They get to the end of their rope and break into a radio station, take it hostage, all in the hopes of getting their demo played and getting signed to a record label and becoming stars. Let's start off with a segment just for this episode called That's So 90s. John, give me some examples that hit you over the head where you're like, oh my god, that is so 90s. Immediately, I'm thinking of Adam Sandler's tummy shirt. (laughs) (laughs) 
I would have also accepted Adam Sandler. Yeah, Adam Sandler, him himself, dressed as a grunge man in a tummy shirt. If 90s were to become a human being, it would be that. It would be his character. This just brought up all my insecurities as a kid from the 90s. Those bastards being thin enough to wear those type of clothes. (laughs) (laughs) You wouldn't have caught me wearing a shirt like that. (laughs) Pretty early on, we see a Sega Game Gear, Stretch Armstrong, and then late in the movie, Kurt Loder showed up. That's when you know it's the 90s. What were some of your favorite scenes or performances in this? There was a moment when Lemmy Kilmeister showed up. I have to bring this up. They keep mentioning Lemmy in the movie. One Motorhead song was at the beginning of the movie. Then he showed up as a cameo. And then they had the question. This is my favorite scene is when uh, (laughs) Egon comes in pretending to be a, a record executive, but he's really an undercover cop. And they asked the question of who would win in a, I think it was a wrestling match, uh, Lemmy versus God. And it was a trick question because Lemmy is God. That was really the first time I took notice of Motorhead. I think this movie really just upped their rep for people. They did a great job. And apparently he was the school magazine editor. I had to pause the movie because this is in the Google age, right? In my short little search, I couldn't find any corroborating evidence that that was more than just dialogue in a movie. It made me sad. (laughs) That is sad, because I feel like he should definitely have been. He probably said it. There is a couple documentaries on him, but each one is like two hours long, and that's way too long for a doc. Yeah, it is. Jeez. Nobody has an attention span like that anymore. No, especially not Motorhead fans. (laughs) You mentioned Steve Buscemi. This is just another amazing tour de force of him as a character actor. I think what is the measure of a great character actor is when you see the role first, or you remember the role first, and then you either remember the actor's name, or somebody has to tell you, oh yeah, that was Steve Buscemi. He does a really good job of just disappearing into those roles. I think there's a line, there's a movie star, and then there's an actor. Steve Buscemi's an actor. And I think at the time, Brendan Fraser was a movie star. You're there to see Brendan Fraser. True, but the scenes Rex is in, he adds that special sauce. Pun intended, because there was, what, hot sauce in one of the uh, fake machine guns? Good call. It reminds me of maybe my favorite scene that I will never fast forward through. It's toward the beginning, when the guys are first trying to get into the radio station. And they try using one of their ATM cards as a security pass to get through the electronic door. (laughs) It's already stupid that they're just using an ATM card. And then Rex asks Pip, played by Adam Sandler, he asks him, what's your ATM code? What's your pin? I need to know. I was like, no, that's private. He says, like, what's your secret code? (laughs) (laughs) There is, like, a really stupid logic to it. Kind of like there is for the rest of the movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's the foundation of Stoner Line. Like, this movie is like seven different genres thrown together. <laughs> yeah, and yet I don't believe anybody smokes pot in the movie, do they? No, I don't even think pot's mentioned. There's stoner comedy to it. A level of it. You mentioned it is a lot of things mixed into one. One of the themes of the movie seems to be corporate music, and this thing's got a lot of satire. Can you think of any notable lines 
or scenes that make you really feel like the movie is sprinkling in commentary? There's a line towards the end of the movie with Judd Nelson talking about, I forget the rocker's name, it, it was uh, Vince Neil. He killed a guy and didn't do any jail time. He only got 30 days. That's like nail on the head commentary, but it was still like rock stars don't do jail time. Here's an example. That was also a little squeamish moment that took me out of the movie for a split second because it's like, oh, yeah, that did happen. <laughs> yeah, I remember that scene for the Netflix movie. And then when I looked it up, he did get sentenced to 30 days along with paying restitution, but he only served 15 of those from good behavior. I mean, if you're on good behavior, you wouldn't have killed a guy in a drunk driving accident, right? <laughs> <laughs> Man, you still like justice for his passenger, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep fighting for the guy who I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like 30 years later, man. <laughs> get over it, dude. If the world could get over hair metal, you can get over that dude dying. Oh, man. It's time to move on. I don't know. There's parts of this country that aren't over hair metal, and that actually bothers me. So, in general, what do you think the movie did right? Everything worked. It's like making a stew. All the ingredients they put in just meshed together. Plus, the acting is really good. I recognized almost every actor in this movie. And that just might be me and, like, us in general being film school nerds. They just cast everything correctly, and so everyone was able to work together. The script was the script. It felt like an 80s movie morphed into a 90s movie, almost. It was during that time, especially when the movie was written, it was a transition period from the hair metal to the grunge. So it exists in a few different worlds. And I say beautifully. I think what this movie really did right is keeping the logic to the movie, all the silly situations and the silly escalation as the trio are holding the radio station hostage asking for crazier and crazier demands. But they never forget that, hey, the only reason all this crazy stuff is allowed is because it's supposed to be a hostage situation. They could just make all the jokes they want and forget their plot. But Jimmy Wing, the record exec, after helicopters have airlifted a stage for them to use, <laughs> and after they've gotten hair and makeup, he still puts up his hands and he says to him, hey, hey, this only works if you still have the hostages, so guns up. <laughs> Let's go to some criticisms. What might you say the film could have done better? Because a lot of stuff did age poorly. Michael Richards is in the movie, I guess that aged poorly. <laughs> He's actually my gripe about the movie as well. His character, doesn't he just disappear from the movie at a certain point? He has a diehard situation in the air vents, and that's his whole plot. But he doesn't directly interact with anybody except Michael McKean at the beginning. At one point, they spray him with a fire extinguisher, but then I don't recall ever seeing him leave the air ducts. No, he didn't come out of the air ducts. He didn't... What happened to him? <laughs> I don't know. I think he just went up and did the Kramer shake. That was most of his thing was doing the Kramer shake when something went wrong, like being on fire or seeing a rat or when a vent comes on and apparently has enough wind power to blow a man down. 
I think he had really gotten into his wheelhouse by then and just said, screw it. This is my toolkit. Love it or leave it. (laughs) (laughs) A new segment, Random Ass Nine Thoughts and Trivia, also known as RAT. All right. Round one for Airheads. The first scene with the Sega Game Gear, not only is there a cartridge in there, which a lot of productions forget to even put in a game, but the sound effects are actually from the game. Oh, I didn't notice that. I never had a Game Gear growing up. Neither did I, but being a retro collector now, I had to look it up, and it is the correct game, and they did use the sound effects from it. What was the game in it? It's called Aerial Assault. Never heard of it. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. It's a side-scrolling shooter. There's probably one audience member out there angry now, like, What? That's the best game! Let's go to yours, John. What do you have for us? So, I came up with this insane theory, because I thought it would be funny, that some of the side characters are the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Apparently there's like a fifth one called Fear? And I'm throwing that guy in, too. Yeah. Okay, go for it. Yeah, we're going to start with Fear. The Horseman of Fear is Ernie Hudson in this movie, because he's afraid for the hostages, so he gives in to every single demand. Okay. I follow. I follow. <laughs> plague is Jimmy Wing, Judd Nelson's character. They say that he's a plague on in the industry. Uh, he's <laughs> and they hate him at the end, too. He's doing that just limp sink, like, He's trying to make money off him. He's not letting them actually be rock stars or even musicians. War is the SWAT guy who shows up. He gives Michael Richards the gun. He is trying to storm the place constantly. He's looking for conflict. I think they set up that his wife just left him, so he is upset. That's a fun little subplot. Yeah. <laughs> and then Famine, Michael Richards is Famine. Uh, Like I said earlier. Because he hasn't gotten work since. Yeah, yeah, he hasn't gotten anything since. (laughs) He might have went on stage and said some racist stuff. Michael McKeon is death because he's trying to kill the radio station and everyone's good time. Ooh. I could see this as a lecture series at UCLA. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) I guess I do have one more rap for you. I like to always mash up movies together and... Is there any world where Airheads is actually a follow-up of The Breakfast Club, and we're seeing Bender (laughs) as the record executive? He transitioned into that guy. (laughs) That's the only thread you need. As a theory, that's a perfect theory. Theories can't be proven right. They can only be proven wrong. And we can get past his name. It's fake corporate America, man. He just came up with a stupid name. Yeah, Jimmy Wing? That's a made-up name. His facial hair, that little goatee thing, soul patch, it's all artifice. (laughs) Yeah, there's no little toddler running around called Jimmy Wing going, hey, oh. It makes the Breakfast Club sadder. (laughs) Realize in his youth, he was the rebel, and now he's just another corporate stooge. I think it makes it better because you see that he wanted to change the world, and he's like, well, punk rock's coming up, grunge. We're going to change the world. And then he just, as soon as he bought his first car, he's just like, I got to make money. (laughs) 
Any uh, final thoughts on Airheads? I liked it more than I remembered. Well, that's always good. Yeah. It didn't all age well, but I think it, uh, in overall it aged well. I feel like it aged well in comparison to our next movie. Oh, yes. Which is Can't Hardly Wait. John, give us a little summary of the plot. It's the tale of high school graduates having a party, and the main character, Preston Myers, is looking to profess his love to Jennifer Love Hewitt. On the face of it, that's like the spine to the movie, but this is such an ensemble cast. It easily could have come off as a bunch of sketches that just happen to be in the same location. There's so many subplots going on. Seth Green's subplot, you got the band subplot, you got the nerd subplot, the jock subplot. Before we get into all that, let's dive into that so 90s. Give me some examples of things in this movie that were so 90s. It was the beginning of the uh, wigger movement of white dudes overly adopting African-American culture. You know, wiggers, wegros, color-challenged people, any of those. <laughs> that was Seth Green and his whole crew was that. The soundtrack was pure 90s. I feel like that was just meant to sell current bands. And I remember digging it. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of felt bad. Being like, yeah, the soundtrack's great. And then I remember, like, oh no, I'm just old. When did you see this movie for the first time? I want to say... In college, the first time I went to not film school, when we went together. Uh, when I went to, first went to college after graduating 2001, so probably 2002. Okay, so relatively uh, soon after it came out. Yeah. I'm a little bit younger than you, so I saw it on TV when I hadn't been to high school yet, so I lived vicariously through the movie. Considering you saw it, and you were already in college and older than the characters, do you recall if that skewed your viewing at all? A little bit, yeah. I was kind of bitter. <laughs> this doesn't actually happen type of, like, ah, oh, why didn't any of that happen? I don't know. I feel like parts of it happened to everybody, but not all of it happened to somebody. Yeah. That's, that, yes. <laughs> it's a pastiche of all the party movies that we wished had happened, just all rolled into one. <laughs> Some other 90s stuff in this, you got Game Boy, Viewmaster, PlayStation 1, dudes wearing multiple wristbands. I remember that in high school. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> By the time I was in high school, they started to do that Live Strong crap. Oh. Not realizing that old Lance was going to let everybody down. <laughs> <laughs> when he meant strong, he meant chemically strong. It's like, check that wristband, you know, I think it's got stimulants on it or something. <laughs> Hold up, yeah. It's injecting performance enhancers into you. Do you think this movie could still work if the score was all made-up songs and they didn't license anything? Honestly, no. I don't think it could have worked. You're supposed to be playing music at a party. No one would have been there for made-up stuff. Come on. That period of life, it just gets locked in time. And it's supposed to always feel out of place with where you're at now. Those songs from that era are necessary to ground it, but then also immediately date it, just like high school is for adults. That's exactly how it felt. 
everyone running around worried about getting laid, what other people think. <laughs> Not a problem anymore. Was there a character in the movie that you really identified with? Probably William Lichter, Charlie Cosmo from Hook. Yeah. Just being the nerd and then just a little alcohol and you're friends with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the parties we've been to together, you are quite a gregarious fellow when you're on the sauce. <laughs> Not that you aren't in general, but definitely more so. It turns up the volume. It does not <laughs> change the person. Do you have any favorite performances or scenes in this? Seth Green really stood out as the only one who really knew how to act. I didn't recognize the rest of the cast compared to Airheads. Really? I thought uh, Mike Dexter. I thought the jock for a little while was Brecken Meyer until he showed up as the band guy. Physically, those guys are pretty different. <laughs> I might have face blindness. I don't know. I'm going to assume you never watched Six Feet Under because you got Lauren Ambrose as Denise, Freddie Rodriguez as one of Mike Dexter's boys, and Eric Balfour shows up, and they were all in Six Feet Under a few years later. Was the short one Freddie Rodriguez? Yeah. I feel bad now because I like him from other stuff. Because there's so many characters. I really just got stuck on a bunch of one-liners. There's a moment where Denise, Preston's friend, she's awkward, she's sitting by herself at the party. We can get the idea that she hasn't made a lot of friends in high school. A girl comes up to her and sits down, and she says, weren't you in my language lab? And it almost seems like they're about to have a conversation. And then once Denise says, yeah, I was, this girl looks at some other people and goes, ha, I told you she went to our school, pay up. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that scene. Stuff like that just tells you so much about that character. There was a lot of that. I remember uh, the two nerds on the roof, they'd cut back to them for, like, one-liners, and they'd be like, hey, you see that star formation right above the power lines right there? It's an intergalactic UFO highway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they just kept going to other people and closing loops for people who had a single line. There's that girl sitting behind Seth Green who's like, I'm going to have sex with the next guy who even talks to me because I want to get back at my boyfriend. And then they close it later with the boyfriend. She's like, I'm sorry, we should never fight. She had one line and they still managed to give her a full story and close the loop. They set up a lot and they pay off everything. And I think that's due to the fact that there were co-writers on this movie and those writers were also the directors. So they weren't going to ignore the script. It was their baby. So besides the setups and payoffs, what other praise could you give this film? I think it was a lot tighter than Airheads. I don't know, we'd go looking for plot holes in comedies, but <laughs> I don't think there's any plot holes in this. But it all fit together really well, like a well-crafted puzzle. I might even say a little overproduced. I think it was these guys' first movie that they were directing. For a teen movie, they were really punching up, and they seemed to throw every movie trick in. There are crane shots, snap zooms, white transitions. It's like they wanted to prove they knew how to make a movie. It was their film school final, and they had to put them in to pass. And it, it all worked, but it also felt unfocused. 
like trail mix where you have candy with spicy checks and <laughs> pesto flavored banana chips and it's like what is this individually it's all good but what's the personality here <laughs> well now let's get into some criticisms not aging well with the uh, homosexual humor they say that three-letter f-word multiple times in this movie one point it was in reference to dudes not wanting to dump their girlfriends that's the opposite <laughs> the opposite of it <laughs> you want to keep dating a girl straight man what are you gay like what that was the insult it didn't make any sense all the stories just felt too much like a b story it's constantly moving never really staying with any character for too long long enough to develop a connection beyond like oh i was that guy in high school yeah there's at least four storylines running through this movie and it feels like a bit too much. Interesting. I work with a guy who Infinity War was the second Marvel movie he saw. He watched the first Iron Man. So I feel like this is how he felt <laughs> watching that. Let's just look at what might ostensibly be the main story. Preston, played by Ethan Embry. Preston and Amanda, Jennifer Love Hewitt. Him trying to give her this love letter. There are moments you're supposed to really be there with the characters, and to some extent I am, because I can understand what that character is about. There may be 20 minutes of the whole movie, and it's just hard to really care about them. He wrote her a letter professing his love, but she had no idea who he was, because at one point they meet and she yells at him, not knowing he wrote the letter, because she didn't recognize the name on the letter. Someone told her she sat next to him in English. And she still yelled at him after because she didn't recognize the face. I don't know where she's coming from in all this. Falling in love with it. I don't know. Dumb teenagers, I guess. Well, they try to give her some depth by saying she was the odd one out at her previous high school. And once she went to this school that she graduated at, she started dating the popular guy. And then all of a sudden that upped her reputation. Almost like they're trying to say, give her some credit. She's not as stuck up as some of the other characters in the movie think she is. But then moments like what you just talked about, where she didn't even realize who the guy was sitting next to her in class, that just makes her look mean. Yeah. Obviously, now I don't remember who I sat next to. I remembered back then. I think everybody does, because you're in a classroom six hours a day or whatever it is. She looked terrible. On the other note, I don't know, she shouldn't be mad at Mike, because she's best friends with those girls that she probably wouldn't have met without him, so was it a waste of time? No. Yeah. I think she needs to be grateful. <laughs> Could you imagine the jocks that watched that movie at the time? Almost like somebody's shaking a finger at them. You guys are bad. <laughs> bad. There's that moment where Jerry O'Connell just shows up. <laughs> I forgot about him. Mike Dexter is supposed to realize that I should appreciate the fact that I went out with this girl. College isn't just one big F fest for the super cool jocks from high school. Jerry O'Connell, as the older kid, telling him about this. I don't get a sense that he has any kind of remorse about being a jerk in high school and taking everything for granted. He's just bummed out that he can't screw everything in college. That was his only regret. The end when they're all hung over at the breakfast joint. Did Mike remember any of that advice? Any of that legitimate genius advice? 
he made up with William the Nerd. And there's an acknowledgement of that happening, because you kind of see it on his face when he makes fun of William in front of his friends at the diner the next morning. It just kind of shows you, well, it doesn't look like Dexter learned anything. He's just a butthole. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to get to Rat Round 2. There is a scene at the party with Jason Siegel where they're talking about Velma from Scooby-Doo. My crazy brain, immediately I thought, well, Siegel starred with Linda Cardellini in Freaks and Geeks the year after this movie came out. And who played Velma in the 2002 Scooby-Doo movie? Linda Cardellini. There you go. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Also, I was listening to the commentary track for this. Production toned down the drinking in a teen graduation party movie because they wanted to avoid the hammer by the MPAA. They did stuff like they CGI'd a balloon over a beer funnel in one scene. <laughs> and in another scene, they replaced a shot glass in someone's hand with a lemon. <laughs> what? Clea Duvall shows up for, like, one gag with Seth Green, where he's hitting on her, and she basically says, I don't want any of it. It would have been nice to have a gay character, and maybe she could have been the one, and it would have made it a little funnier why she's telling him, I don't want any of what you're selling. Yeah, you're right. There should have been at least one gay character. Lauren Ambrose. I feel like her ending would have been better, being the rebel who just understands society a little better than the rest of them. Well, go back with me to the 90s. With these two movies having very different flavors, very different genres of music, do you remember the transition from the early 90s to the late 90s and music shifts? Yes, I do. Because early 90s was still, hair metal was still hanging on. And the hair stayed, but the genre of music switched Metallica started to become more prevalent. They were a little heavier. Grunge started to appear. From the metal perspective, late 90s was new metal that started coming on. I don't remember when System of a Down came on the scene or Slipknot or those guys. Rap started becoming popular in the late 90s. So it wasn't just how metal changed, but what was popular in the culture in general. I'm happy to report from my time that the poppy R&B stuff later in the decade, at least where I was living, didn't exactly stamp out the metal grunge guys. So that look was still around. People still listened to that music. Then they started to have some competition, especially in 99 with Britney Spears and then all those pop stars sprang right up. Oh, yeah. It's a treat that Can't Hardly Wait came out a year before Britney Spears hit it big, I could see a version of that flick where it's all just pop stars. Her, Mandy Moore, Destiny's Child. And I wouldn't have liked that soundtrack as much. They would have been the stars of the movie, too. They would have had them acting in the movie. Did you feel like anybody from either of these two movies, a jarring omission not to have any music from a particular band? I don't think... Black Sabbath was on Airhead soundtrack. Do you go Ozzy or Dio? I'm an Ozzy man. Dio 
that's a whole nother podcast of just talking about what a legend Dio is for being able to even fill the shoes of Ozzy like he did. And Dio solo stuff. I'm still looking for rainbows in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) I think from Can't Hardly Wait, it rang a little false to me. Where was Green Day? Because they were popular, I remember, from the mid-90s till at least the early 2000s when I was in high school. Oh, wow. I didn't realize Green Day wasn't a... Because I kept hearing snippets of... I feel like everything. It never occurred to me to think that something might be missing. There were three different scenes with Smash Mouth, of all bands. I felt like I was watching their Behind the Music or some crap. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to the finale of the show. TLDL. Too long. Didn't listen. I'm going to ask you some questions. I want short answers. Are you ready, sir? Let's do this. Besides Jennifer Love Hewitt, what other actresses do you think belong on the 90s hotties Mount Rushmore? I'm going to put Jamie Prisley was in that movie. I'm putting her up there. I would also like to add Jessica Alba. Ooh. (laughs) Now I feel bad for not saying that. Which movie is more immersive as far as the 90s zeitgeist? Probably can't hardly wait. Long hair and cut-up jeans or highlights and baggy pants? Oh, neither. Can I just neither? No, no, you must pick one. If I must pick, it's long hair and cut-up jeans, because cut-up jeans, I think, are still in style. Is Brendan Fraser better in his comedy, drama, or action movies? Oh, man, that's tough. I'm going to go comedy. I like him as a comedic actor. But that's because he takes it seriously, because he's a good dramatic actor. Who was more annoying in the 90s, Adam Sandler or Seth Green? Oh, I gotta go with Seth Green. He took a minute. Everyone loved Adam Sandler in the 90s, and he wore thin, whereas I think everyone hated Seth Green. Seth Green's a fine wine, and Adam Sandler is a beer. Okay, your nephew says he wants to watch something 90s. Which of these two movies would you put on for him? Um, my nephew specifically, I'd put on Airheads. Both my older brothers are metalheads, and that's where I got it from. And so the kid of the old metalhead is going to want to watch Airheads. Especially because I can get his dad to come in and watch it and find it hilarious. Can't hardly wait. I think that is just general 90s. I dare call it a period piece. 